You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Today, I get to welcome, and uh, turns out, an old friend, uh, Mitch Kapor. Um, Mitch sort of represents, if you look at your uh, your list here, and it's always great to pick up one of these on the way in or look at it online. Uh, Mitch is the first of eight, but he kind of represents a piece of everybody else you're going to see the rest of the quarter. They're investors, they're entrepreneurs. Oh my goodness, there are social uh, entrepreneurs here, uh, ed- people who are deeply interested in education. Uh, so it's kind of uh, it's kind of cool that we get to have Mitch uh, kick us off here in 2008. I could spend the rest of the hour highlighting his bio. I mean, he went to Yale, went to MIT. We got we got an MIT fan down here with his T-shirt that says "MIT Nerds Rock," so we got at least two MIT nerds in the room. <laughs> um, but uh, I got to know Mitch when he was. Um, it was a long time ago, 25 years ago, when he was in the midst of founding Lotus. Now, if you text or email your parents during this session and say, did you use Lotus123, uh, about 90% probability you'll get an answer back saying, uh, yeah, of course. It was really the spreadsheet that was the killer app uh, for personal computing in the 80s. And, and a lot of people feel like it, it uh, was the major reason that personal computer uh, took hold. Of course, the now we use Excel and all that, but many of the basic ideas were embedded in 123 or its predecessor that we're, we both know well and who worked with Lotus 2, and that's VisiCalc. So that's, that's from the sort of 80s. But if you leap ahead to all the things that have gone on recently, I'm going to start by uh, chatting with uh, Mitch about what, what, uh, what's up right now? What's he doing here in 2008? Um, they relate specifically to uh, a, a new startup. Uh, well, was a new startup last year. Uh, Fox Marks, and that makes sense. You know, the Fox part of that, you know, it's kind of interesting because Mitch uh, was one of the founders uh, and so earlier supporters of uh, Mozilla Foundation. So, how many of you use Firefox? Yeah, I thought so. So, we, you know, that the connection is there. And how many of you have hung out on Second Life? Because he has had a lot to do with that. Second Life, great. Well, I hope you'll talk a little bit about that as well. So, let's start with uh, Fox Marks. What is it? What are you doing with the company right now? So. Foxmarks is a little startup. The product that is in the market is a Firefox extension. It does one very simple thing, which is that it synchronizes bookmarks if you have two or more computers. So you're in in browser bookmarks. It will just keep a single set uh, seamlessly and transparently. And it it filled a big uh, niche in the market. So about half a million people a day use it and are quite dependent on it. Um, the, that has allowed us to aggregate together a very large corpus of bookmarks, because we've been doing this for a couple of years, about half a billion of them, 500 million uh, instances of bookmarks. And so the real uh, business of Foxmarks going forward is going to be to do something with that aggregate set. We're not interested in personal data. We're interested in the wisdom of crowds. So for instance, we know that it is possible to mine that corpus to do interesting things with helping people discover uh, websites that they didn't know about, about topics that they care about. Um, and so we're in the process of bringing product to market. They'll help with discovery. It'll help with the uh, assessment of the quality of information of websites and, and a few other things. 
And so um, the search part of that, I mean, what's yeah. it like starting a company that's kind of trying to compete with big giants such as Google, for Competing example. with big giants is a bad idea and should be avoided. I mean, the problem for a little startup, whether you're doing this in the 80s or 90s, in which case every single startup had to worry about, well, what's Microsoft going to do? Today, it's a different question. You do a startup, and the question is, well, is Google doing this? Might they do this? Can you take advantage of what Google is doing? So one of the things that we learned in doing Foxmarks, case in point, is our first thought about what we could do with all these bookmarks is to build a specialized search engine, not to do all searches, but to do what we call topic search. So if you're interested in a subject, it could be kiteboarding or uh, uh, arthritis or, I mean, you name it, but, but a subject that has some real aboutness to it, as opposed to a factoid, which is an answer to a particular question, um, Foxmarks lets you find, not the, not the public product that's out there, but this prototype that we built and tested privately, the best websites on that subject. And it actually finds a different and, in many cases, better set than, than Google, which is not optimized for that problem. The issue was when we tested it is if you package it up to look anything like a search engine, the behavior and expectations are such these days that if you don't do everything that search engines do, people aren't interested. So mm -hmm. we learned a real lesson, which is that the productization has to take a different path so it won't be confused. And there are, there are plenty of things uh, uh, to be done about that, but I want to maintain a little element of surprise till we actually put something out. Well, and, my, and yeah. the other thing I was yeah. thinking about was that, yeah. going back, yeah. since I yeah. mentioned Lotus, yeah. is that that was a, for business markets, and you were mostly selling to corporations yeah. and changing the way they... Uh, they did uh, you know, basic financial computing. Um, and that's a certain kind of marketing and, and uh, type of business model. What's it like, you know, uh, and what lessons have you been applied to, to something like Foxmarks, which is, a, you know, this generation's or this, this decade's style of going direct to consumers? So much has changed in 20 years. A huge amount. Uh, well, I mean, people start businesses in their dorm rooms now. I mean, like like Facebook, that become huge. It's easy enough, <clears throat> there's enough technology that's readily available, and it's cheap enough that the barriers to entry for startups are enormously lower than they were uh, a, a generation ago. Um, it means there can be much more competition. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that's enormously different is when you do a consumer-facing uh, internet service, you get immediate feedback from people. You can tell what they're doing, what they're not doing, what they're clicking on, whether they like it, whether they don't like it, and it, it permits extraordinarily rapid evolution of your business model. You can tune your website, you can do very systematic A-B testing, and a number of companies have gotten really good at this, uh, and as a result, um, you don't have to figure out as much in advance and get it right. What you have to do is, you're doing a business, find a good starting point and then get in a very tight iteration with uh, the community of use to evolve the product in ways that, that give you critical mass. And that was simply not possible without the internet and all yeah. of everything that, uh, that comes with it. So in a way, it's a different uh, kind of game. But in a way, it isn't, there are fundamentals that haven't changed, which is that you still have to have, I mean, forgive the buzzword, a value proposition. I mean, it is interesting that there are, for instance, Facebook apps that have demonstrated that within, you know, 15 minutes they can get 8 million users. Okay. But 
they're actually not very interesting as businesses because they're not offering anything so far in general that keeps those 8 million people there. Uh, and if you're going to build a business that ultimately has some value uh, and has revenue or has value to somebody who already has revenue, uh, I note today that Sun Microsystems bought uh, MySQL for a billion dollars. Um, you know, you have to solve somebody's problem. Somebody has to be in some pain or they have to have a problem, and you have to do something that is going to help them with that in a way that they can appreciate. And enough people have to have that problem to make it worthwhile to do a product, and ultimately there has to be some way to make money at it. So the, the 20 questions that you ask about a startup in 1983, say, are, are fundamentally the same set of questions that you ask. It's that the difference is that the means by which the answers are created are very, very different, better, faster, cheaper, uh, and so on. So let me just get some of the, yeah. the details of Fox yeah. Marks just to give a yeah. picture. How, how many people work at the company? Where is it? Uh, it's in San Francisco, um, South of Market, uh, within shouting distance of 200 other startups. Uh, it's about 10 people. Um, and, and you funded it your, uh, so far yourself? Fun, so, so far funded it myself. And so how is that different than taking on venture capital, for example? I know we talked about that last summer once. Well... You know, one thing that's different then and now, of course, is as an entrepreneur, there are many more sources of capital. Uh, in, in many cases, it's actually possible to self-finance. It's so inexpensive. Even if you're not wealthy, you can get, you know, you can get going. Another thing is all of the angel money that is around of entrepreneurs and others who have been successful who can help with the first fifty or $100,000. We're going to meet a couple of them next week in um, Ron Conway. And so... That has changed the picture so that uh, there are a lot of projects now that never get to institutional venture capital because they don't, you know, they don't need to, and it's a much more uh, competitive kind of market. But, uh, and in some cases, people who have been su successful will come back and start a second company, or even a third or a fourth. I mean, there's a, you know, have to be triple-digit number of serial entrepreneurs in the Valley, right. maybe even thousands, and that didn't used to be the case. So something that I've learned, which is uh, that there are, while there are obvious advantages to being able to self-finance, mainly you don't have to go out and raise money, you don't have to spend your time spending months trying to get somebody to write a check, you can be working on product, and you're not subject to certain kinds of negative pressures that come sometimes when you've raised money. I understood the advantages, but there are, turns out, I, I now think, at least for me personally, there are disadvantages, which is that if you have to go out and raise money, it actually um, creates some accountability conditions. Like you actually have to demonstrate progress and make somebody else happy besides yourself. And when you self-finance, it's too easy not to have the discipline, even if you mean well, to put off tough decisions about growing the business because you know you could stretch it out, I could put a little bit more money in. Mm -hmm. And I think that that actually, there are liabilities around that. And so uh, with a company like Foxmarks, we are in the process, just myself and three other founders, literally, of, even though I could continue uh, financing it, making a fundamental decision that says if we can't go out and raise outside money within a certain period of time, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Maybe that's a real signal that, you know, it's, it's not the right thing yeah, to do. Sort of that, right. that external review or, or yeah. validation. Right. Well, before we... And the, the neutrality of point of view that an investor will have, assuming, you know, and we could talk about how to, how to, how to pick an investor, because you do want someone you can work with and someone that you respect and trust. Yeah. But, and that's 
Sometimes well, it's challenging and difficult. Given all you've seen but, over the years, how do you yeah. pick an investor? Well, I think you actually pick an investor the same way you would pick like a co-founder or other senior people on the team. They obviously have to have the right skill set. I mean, people shouldn't be getting in the door if they don't have the skills that you need. But more than that, I think, you know, you want to work with people that you respect and that you can learn to trust. You don't want to feel like it's fundamentally an adversarial kind of uh, relationship. And so, um, you know, I encourage people to be choosy. It's actually, for entrepreneurs, it's a good market to be choosy because there's too much money chasing too few good opportunities. So if you have a good opportunity, I mean, if you are a good opportunity, uh, there, you, you can be selective about, about who you work with around investors. Yeah. Talent is harder because of the great talent vacuum cleaner that's Google and talent vacuum cleaner that's, that's Facebook. And what I've seen successful companies do now, they do a couple of things. One, even if they're, still, even if they're based in the Valley, they say, we're going to do distributed development and we're going to have small groups outside the Bay Area. We're going to find people in Portland and in Austin and in Seattle and in New York and Boston, and we're going to set ourselves up to work in that fashion because you can find people in those areas uh, more easily. Uh, they're less expensive. There's somewhat more of a burden if you're doing distributed development, but so many people, as long as it's not too many time zones away, so many people are now doing that successfully that I don't see that as a barrier. Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's one way. Another way, actually, in all honesty, is to locate up in the city. Because if you're down in the valley, it's like ground zero. Up in the city, there are a lot of developers and other people who don't want to make the commute down here. Right. Or they live in the East Bay and they want to take BART. I mean, I swear, if I stand on the roof of my building, which is on Howard Street, between 1st and 2nd, and I shout really loud, there have to be 200 other startups in the, within the sound of my voice. Well, I was going to ask that was you never, about never it. never used to be the case. Well, I'm glad you answered yeah. that. I was, yeah. was going to ask yeah. about uh, yeah. how, attracting yeah. talent. I want to come back to that. One thing I should have said at the beginning, and I apologize, yeah. so let me uh, digress for a minute. Um, in prepping for today, we decided to do a, a slightly different approach. Um, I uh, polled some students. Uh, and, in fact, we reached back and looked at uh, the last assignment that you had, and the folks, folks, these folks in the room t taking this for credit, which from last quarter, which was, what kind of questions would you like to ask speakers? So we sort of used some of those. I pulled some students I know, undergrads, saying, well, what should I ask, uh, Mitch? And then we kind of tried to organize them in some sort of you know, logical flow, although it's okay if they're random, um, because there was, a, there was a lot of you know, ways we could go. I promise you, though, uh, that we will stop with plenty of time uh, for questions and answers. So in your mind right now, if something triggers, uh, get ready, because we'll, we'll have that opportunity, uh, you know, a little bit after five, and then, you know, use the balance of the hour to do that. So uh, that is for those of you who are new. Who is new? Who's the first time? Who's the first time? Uh, been, first time? Okay, good, good. I'm glad I said that. So get ready, because you're going to have a chance to, to, to drill down and participate as well. We'll just do this for a little longer. Um, let's talk about Second Life, because that, that's, uh, that's, that's pretty cool as well. First of all, I, I know only a few users of Second Life or, or visitors. I always like the way our industry calls uh, customers or people users. Well, the Sounds line like is, drugs. yeah, it's, it's us and, and, and drugs. There's some drug users in here. Raise users. your hands. That's right. 
No, no I mean users in second. So what is well, Second Life? We'll just do that. Well, so and, and actually, involvement. if we ask a different question, how many people have heard of Second Life and have some idea of what it is? Could I see hands? Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay, no, yeah, that, that's a better it, way. It's an interesting uh, demographic because uh, undergraduates uh, actually are demographically underrepresented. The uh, Second Life usage is really centered around about age 35 for is that right? in- interesting okay. reasons. Uh, oh, but, you mean about my age? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, what are you laughing about? So I'm the, I'm the board chair of Second Life. I was the first investor. Philip Rosedale is the founder and the CEO, but I have been involved since, uh, since 2000, so for seven years. It's actually been a long, uh, a, a long journey. And, you know, Second Life is the... I think it's the first general-purpose virtual world that has gotten any kind of critical mass. And it's this very interesting environment now where, on the one hand, there are an amazing number of interesting things going on there. There are hundreds of college courses that are taught in Second Life. You have everything that people do in the real world, whether it's architecture or fundraisers for nonprofits or hanging out at clubs or, you know, pick there's an analog in Second Life. And people are, because the residents, which is what we call the users, create all of the content and uh, do all of the scripting, and it's an, it's an open system, and it also has an economy uh, of, in which people can make money, and some tens of thousands of people do make money, real U.S. dollar money every month. Um, uh, it's gone in directions that the founders could never anticipate and didn't want it, you know, didn't, didn't try to anticipate. And that, that experimental, you know, vitality is, is incredible on the one hand. And on the other hand, it's still terribly difficult to use. There's an attrition rate. Nine out of every ten people who try it, try it and don't come back. And, you know, my conclusion, I should say that I've fully drunk the virtual world Kool-Aid in, in the sense that I believe that virtual worlds will become as fundamental a part of the information technology landscape as the PC, the Internet, and the web. Give it 10 years. Give it, you know, maybe 10 to 15 years. Whether Second Life, how, how big a part of it Second Life is, that's completely unknown. Nobody's a clairvoyant. could become really big. It could fall by the wayside. When you look at companies that have been the early movers and leaders in, in big emerging segments... Uh, some of them did very well, and some of them you've never heard of. I mean, there's the, the source, for instance, was one of the first online bulletin board systems. I guarantee not more than 10% of the people have ever heard of it. You probably heard of CompuServe. It was the early leader. It stuck around for a long time but became completely irrelevant. And so there's a huge challenge for the company to go beyond early promise and early success. Mm-hmm. And virtual worlds are general-purpose ones where you can do anything and you're not restricted you make, make your own content. Um, it, it's a huge platform, and I realized recently that it's kind of like personal computers before Windows and the Mac, which there actually were personal computers for a long time, uh, and they, 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 if they were uh, Intel machines, they ran this operating system called DOS, which was character-based, not a graphical user interface. It's, it's what, what Lotus ran on, and they were great, and millions of people used them, and they were too hard to use for the general public, and things didn't get better, really, until Windows came of age, uh, which is really Windows 95. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's all history now, 
not current, I think that's the right model. And mm -hmm. so I have a very different job at Second Life than I do with Foxmarks, where I'm the, the founding CEO at Foxmarks. I'm the board chair. I worry about strategy. Uh, I worry about raising money. I try to be a mentor to Philip and share my experience, think about kind of big picture issues and, and, and figure out where Well, there were a lot going. of provocative things that yeah. were just said. So, so I may break protocol here. Yeah. Does anybody have a question about Second Life? So let's take a couple of questions on Second Life, Great. then we'll move on to some other stuff. Great. So are there any measures uh, to prevent somebody from uh, forming a pyramid scheme? Funny you should mention that because the, while the company is, I mean, the company by philosophy is fundamentally libertarian in the sense of thinking that less government is better than more government. This is in terms of the company making rules about what you can do and not do in it. Uh, but given that, it took a rather extraordinary move of saying to people using the system, if you're going to offer something that looks like a bank, you know, where you're lending money or promising investment returns, you have to show that you're chartered by the relevant terrestrial authorities. And it did this because there were three or four in-world, when we say in-world, we mean in Second Life, financial institutions a bank and a, and, a, and a stock market, actually, that failed. And residents lost money uh, in it. And so the company took the step of putting in some regulation. So the short answer is yes. Martin? I have a question. They, yeah. When you look at the users or whatever you call them, residents. Are, they, are they also very international? Or very. Is there so let's repeat similar? the question. Yeah. Are there, are, is, and lastly, yeah. or would other geographies their own life. I, I saw ITI in, in China, for yeah. instance, which is similar. So what's okay. the it, The usage question is about the geographical distribution of usage in Second Life. Actually, about two-thirds of the usage is outside the U.S. It is mainly international, which is interesting because all the servers at this point are still in the U.S., which means there's high latency outside, but it has taken off much faster um, uh, elsewhere, and there are entire regions in Second Life where English is not the language that is spoken there. There's, there's Japanese, there's Portuguese, because uh, there's a big Brazilian uh, component, and there's German, and, and so on. Uh, there is a Second Life uh, clone called Hypihai in China that the company is exploring cooperating with. And, uh, you know, Internet companies in China, the successful ones, have all ultimately been Chinese-based, the U.S. companies that went into China have only succeeded not on their own, but when they've had a partner. And it's an interesting thing about the Chinese economy and, 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 and how that works. But no, it is extremely, uh, Second Life is, is very international. So a whole, uh, we'll do some more questions about Second Life or other things uh, during the open Q&A. I got a couple of categories of questions that I, I want to get to. So let's, let's go yeah. back to them. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about. Uh, people, and, and because we, we touched on it yeah. briefly when you were talking about recruiting talent, but it's much right. more to uh, being uh, to yeah. uh, human re resources than just you know recruiting. Is okay? What happens after that? I will say I have one, and I'll, I in front of my new 
200 friends here. I have one big regret in my life is I never worked for you. <laughs> and that is because, uh, Mitch, and I don't mean to patronize you, it is, is that Mitch was ahead of his time and how to treat people. Uh, it's all, uh, you know, many of you have heard about the wonderful legacy of Hewlett Packard in, you know, in this valley. Um, certainly you're not that, uh, um, that generation. But Not with, quite. you know, with, with in the world of uh, personal computing, which was you know just had had been an incredible industry and explosion over the last thirty years, when when Mitch started companies, it was all about the people. You hear this over and over in here, right? I mean, it's all about the people, all about people. They're, and you also hear in here that the other thing is is you have to execute. So maybe think about this. People say, okay, it's about the team, it's about people. This is a person that actually executed that belief. Um, and it's, uh, for those of us who write textbooks and teach this material, I often uh, try to just channel and, and frankly just uh, take on some of the things that you did at Lotus and the other kinds of things uh, that you did over time. So I have some specific questions there after that you know, long-winded run-up. Um, what is the role of company culture in the success of a startup? Yeah. I, I know it's a generic question, but what is your personal philosophy about that? I want them to hear that. Well, I think by and large, pretty much all of the most successful tech companies, and by most successful I mean over a long run, all had very strong cultures. I mean, Microsoft was a certain kind of place. Uh, uh, Hewlett Packard was a certain kind of place. Uh, and, And everybody sort of knows what it is. There are certain things that are valued. There are certain types of personalities and certain behaviors that are the, you know, these are the stars, this is how we do things. This is opposed to companies that don't particularly have a strong culture. So that's, that's point one. Okay. Point two is I think, you know, founders play an enormous role in setting the tone of, uh, of the company culture. Uh, and, and whether they do it consciously or not, certainly if they do it consciously, even more so. But, um, I mean, for many years... Uh, you would see at Microsoft all of these mid-level managers that were little Bill Gates clones or, 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 or trying to be. And I can only imagine that now at, you know, at Facebook, people are trying to figure out how to be the next Mark Zuckerberg, you know? Lots so, of Adidas shoes. What's it? Lots of Adidas uh, sandals. Yeah. So in my situation, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll just spend a brief 30 seconds on a little bit of background. I went to MIT. I went to business school. I dropped out, but I'm mostly self-educated in computers. What I did after college, and I did grow up in the 60s, is I was a disc jockey at a progressive rock radio station, and then I was a meditation teacher, and I got a master's degree in counseling psychology. uh, so a very non-traditional kind of background, and stumbled into personal computers. I was kind of waiting for them to be invented. Had always been very good at math. No, and fell in love with PCs, and they changed my life. Uh, but the, uh, but, and this is so early. Like I got into PCs in '78. It was like three years before the IBM PC even, uh, even came out. And um, Lotus became very successful unexpectedly. Just to give you some idea, uh, we got funded on a plan that said we'd do $3 million in revenue. In our first year, we did $53 million. 
uh, and then we tripled to 150 million in 84, uh, and we went public in 83, and we went from zero to 2,000 employees in, in three years during the time I was the CEO. So we were the hyper-growth company um, of the 80s. And, and a number of the things that apply to the current hyper-growth companies also apply to us. One was we were so successful, there was nobody to tell us we couldn't do stuff, you know. So that was, that, that, that was great. And given my background... I always had a bad attitude as an employee. I had problems with authority. and I uh, <laughs> gave you a little bit of my background. And here I was, the CEO of this company. I said, Let's, I want this to be the kind of place that even somebody like me would like to work at. And, so, uh, and because there was nobody to say we couldn't do that, um, we built a culture that took people very seriously. And, and uh, let me just give you one for instance which is like lots of companies have corporate values. Mostly they get ignored or paid lip service to. You know, we, well, we value openness and accountability and transparency. What we did at Lotus was we not only had corporate values, but we also measured our performance on them. We did a very rigorous annual survey of all the employees on the quality of work life, anonymous and confidential. And we not only measured how things were going, but we had management accountability because a part of managers' bonuses was literally tied to how well the people who worked for them evaluated them, not just talking the talk, but walk the walk of corporate values. So we structured the thing in a way that said, look, uh, accountability is important, openness is important, and we're going to measure it. And we're going to hold people accountable to it. And that's the way you do anything in business. That's the way you develop products. That's the way you make your, your financial numbers. We just basically did it around kind of people issues with a commitment to very progressive values. So we had, back in the 80s, we had an employee diversity committee without gays and lesbians. This was like 1983. This was like, you know, 10 years before anybody did this because I said, I want this to be the kind of place that everybody can feel comfortable, you know, working at. Everybody has something to contribute. So that's just, that's just who I am. And uh, I was fortunate at Lotus to have an opportunity to do this big experiment. And the, the legacy of Lotus is not so much in product. There was 123 supplanted by Excel. There was Lotus Notes acquired by IBM in the mid-90s. But there are thousands of Lotus alumni for whom, as the East Coast company was in Cambridge, so it's, it's less felt out, out here. Yeah. It was the most important employment experience of their life, and they carry things forward with them to all the other places they've worked about how we did things and how we handled things. That might yeah. be what you're most so, proud of. I am most legacy. proud of that. Yeah, I am, that I'm, very, I'm very proud of that. Well, I have to, it might, so, I, this may be an odd segue, yeah. but I, I do, this is a yeah. very, this came from a student. But let so, me just say Yeah, go ahead, thing. yeah. I always yeah. say when I talk about this, I, I, tell this I, I told it intentionally the way I did. I like to give the numbers first about the financial success yeah. because it sets the context that says, this is not some kind of uh, kumbaya, let's all get around the campfire and feel good. It's about how you create businesses that can both be successful in, in, in financial terms, but have other dimensions of success that are equally important. And frankly, that's hard. It's like mm-hmm. Lotus to, totally steered me in the wrong direction because it was too quick, too easy. So, so uh, I think I have a question yeah. that might be a little bit of a drill down. It's a, yeah, it's a, drill down. It may be a... Uh, puzzler, because when I read it, it came from a student, a real live student, um, 
uh, <laughs> and it, uh, maybe uh, uh, maybe you'll have some insight because this was this was a good one. Quote: How do you trust the people you hire? What are some of the checks and balances you put in place to ensure trust in an organization? And I guess that could be a company, it could be the university here, it could be right. you know anything you're doing. Well, so. Because trust is such an interesting it, word. Yeah, it's an ongoing other. process, and you have to invest in it. I mean, trust is earned and built, not found. Um, I mean, it helps uh, to be self-aware, <laughs> um, if, if, if you want to do that. And I think it also helps to have a kind of a shared framework of principles and values in the company. So it's a set of external kind of standards. And again, we talked about you know, values of uh, you know, transparency or accountability. Or, I mean, pick, pick, your, pick your favorite values. But if you, if you are willing to invest in a discussion about what is it that we believe in and what standards are we holding ourselves accountable to, then it is a, you have a means by which to negotiate and navigate all of the stuff that happens. Because stuff happens in a company. You never have enough resources mm-hmm. in, in a startup. You're always under time pressure. You can't watch what everybody is doing. It requires you know, people to have a lot of initiative. But if you come together and look at well, how something was done and was it done the way you know, we like to do things, yep. and if you can have the kind of communication that is difficult but, but ultimately very rewarding, everybody will learn together. People will sort themselves out, and trust will be built. So it, it's not a formula, it, but it, and it requires a commitment. It's like if you know everything that's worthwhile requires commitment. I mean, I mean, classically, people will spend you know 16, 18 hours a day coding around the clock to get a, a release out. That's commitment. There has to be an equal kind of commitment. It doesn't have to take the same form if you take people seriously to doing a whole range of things to build that into the business. If you put it on after the fact, it's going to fail. Well, you know what? That, that last few minutes is exactly. one of the reasons uh, I and I think some of the other instructors would share this mm-hmm. view, why we love this seminar series. Because we'll talk about technologies in here. We'll talk about the latest in information technologies like yeah. Second Life. And, you know, that's a big paradigm shift. We're going to have somebody coming in here and talking a great deal about green technologies, which is yeah. all the rage. I mean, there's some big, big opportunities in uh, energy and, and uh, clean tech. And we're going to have somebody coming up later in the quarter in uh, medical devices. He's, he's, he's just a serial entrepreneur. And what's really interesting, so we'll, we'll dive deep into technologies, but what really what magic happens in here sometimes is when we get an entrepreneur or another kind of thought leader who just says, well, let me start telling you about my philosophies. And this is where, you know, being at Stanford, it's really cool because we've got an engineering school, we've got a humanities school, we all try to, we're trying to cut across and bring in different themes. So entrepreneurship is just a, it's a wonderful kind of uh, big tent for us to be able to talk about any number of things. Let me shift gears to my last uh, uh, set of questions here that the students were asking. That is because, and I, and I rem- remember I had some students that did a, a term project on you a couple of years ago, and they just said, wow, we just, we just never, m- this, this person embodies social responsibility, which is a big, long word you'll hear about. You know, the companies ought to be socially responsible. You hear about now in terms of social entrepreneurship or social innovation, that there's a big buzz around that. And uh, they were just, a, they were amazed how 
you, uh, you've lived in a for-profit world. Yes, you've done some things that are you know, pure non-profit, but you've, you've somehow built in um, this, uh, these idealistic goals into these for-profit companies from the get-go. So it's sort of related to what we were talking about. Um, do you, what do you think about the buzz right now? What, 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 is, what makes it real to you? I mean, you Can know, I just help, give, help me understand give it. one example yeah. so it may help establish some credibility? So I was one of the very small group of people that worked to move the Mozilla project out of AOL and into its own foundation. To I haven't been involved on the product side with Firefox, but with the organizational structure, and very involved with creating Mozilla Corporation inside of the foundation and that does the business deal with Google and others. So the idea there was that, I mean, browsers are big business, very competitive. Uh, Firefox has, you know, good market share, 15, 20 percent and going up. It makes a lot of money, 60, 70 million dollars a year. We tried to figure out a way that that could be done so that it could be competitive as a browser in a competitive space, but at the same time to ensure that the money that was made went to um, a set of uh, philanthropic and charitable purposes. Because this, this was the wish of the... This is built by a community of people who were volunteers. And so we evolved the structure with the foundation on the outside and a corporation on the inside, but the foundation controls the corporation. No stock options, no IPO. Got to attract talent. And anyway, it was a good experiment. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to be working. So yeah. that's, that's unique. I don't think there'll be another, another Mozilla but, uh, as such. But, so what can you but share what with about us? the current? Yeah, what, what, yeah, what, oh, what can you share? Yeah. What some general principles do you think <clears throat> well, are important for this? Well, you know, I'm going to sound like a, you know, a broken MP3. I would say broken record, but we don't, we don't have records anymore. <laughs> um, which is that if you take social responsibility seriously, you have to build it in from the outset. It's kind of flavor of the month right now, everything, and... and if you try to layer social responsibility like icing onto a cake in a business, that's not very interesting. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on. But I do think that there are, um, let me give you one example, where uh, there's an uh, investment management firm that was started. One of the partners is Al Gore. Another is a guy named David Blood, used to run Goldman Sachs Asset Management. And they had, they, they placed the following bet. They said several years ago that the world is changing and that sustainability is going to become uh, a key corporate strategy. It might be around carbon footprint. It might be around human capital. But we believe businesses that are ahead of the curve in what they're doing about sustainability are going to do better on average than their peers because of the way the world is changing. You know, with the climate change and so on. And so they created an investment company in which social responsibility actually drives profits because they're looking for companies for whom the, the social responsibility and sustainability is interwoven in a business in a way that that very thing makes them more successful. And they try to assemble a portfolio of those companies and hold them from the long term. So it, it's kind of Warren Buffett meets the Sierra Club. Uh, trying to get you know the best of both worlds, but it's working quite well. And I think in different sectors, in, in, in green tech and clean right. tech and others, there will be opportunities to do great businesses based on doing the right thing. Uh, you've got to be careful and you've got to be smart, 
But are there an increasing number of opportunities like that? I believe that's the case. Well, one more thing before we, we go into open Q&A. I have to talk about it because it, uh, it's something that I became aware of. Uh, my alma mater is that other school here in the Bay Area that we know and love, uh, Berkeley. And um, Mitch is an adjunct professor over there right now because he cares deeply about reli uh, religion. Religion. <laughs> that was religion. We'll discuss this in a little time. Religion, education, uh, education, and uh, uh, something from my Berkeley days kicked in, and so it's, you know uh, uh, my hard disk went bad there for a minute. But um, so education, but. So can you talk a little bit about, I know this is a non sequitur, but it is just in, it, incredibly cool, and it's in the area of social innovation. It's this level, level playing field uh, organization. Sure. I want them to hear about that, then we'll do sure. open Q&A. Well, so Level Playing Field Institute is a nonprofit, shares space up in San Francisco with Fox Marks and the other things we do. Really, uh, my wife, uh, Frida Kapor Klein, is the, the principal of that. I'm her partner in this. But the, the premise there is that um, there exist, uh, let's see, how do, how do I want to say this? Take it the other way around. Level Playing Field has started scholarship and leadership development programs that are Berkeley-centered. One's for Berkeley undergraduates, one is for high school students from the Bay Area, a summer residential program in math and science, but that serves a population of underrepresented students of color, so African-Americans, uh, Latino, uh, Native American, on the premise that um, there's a huge amount of talent in those communities that is simply not getting access to opportunity. The playing field is not level. Uh, their high school educations, like in the inner cities, are just not, it doesn't matter how smart you are, you're just not, if you are competing in a world against other people whose parents can afford to invest in in private education to provide other things, the, the playing field isn't level. So we try to level the playing field through these programs that do not just scholarship uh, money, but also provide um, uh, a kind of a safety net, provide access to a set of resources to help people be more competitive. So for instance, with the undergraduates, it's helping people find the unpaid internships that are going to help them get into grad school mm -hmm. because we now know if you're in a competitive field for grad school or professional school, you have to, having good summer internships in your field are really going to help you a lot. But if you come from a low-income family, you can't take an unpaid summer internship. So we, you know, we, we, we pay the stipend. Right. But the, another, another way to look at this is, and, well, so I'll say two more things at a personal level, is very meaningful to me because even though I'm not from one of those groups, my experience growing up was one of being socially completely excluded, having grown up at a time when there was just nothing cool about being a nerd or a geek. The geek chic just it did not exist in the 1950s and 60s. If it had, my experience might have been different. Right. But that, I, at a personal level, you know, can completely relate to the idea that there's a population of people who feel excluded, who are excluded, who don't have access to opportunities. And if they did, they would show what they could do and really make a difference and contribute to society. Um, the, the last you know, perspective on this is I think we face a talent shortage. I think there's a, uh, a talent shortage in the U.S. For, to help keep the U.S. economy strong for people to go into the STEM field, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And we are 
overlooking and not developing the talent of a very significant portion of our population, and it's, it's, it's crazy not to. So I'm, I spend a significant amount of time helping with Level Playing Field uh, and its, its program. Well, I hope you'll, so. you'll take a look at their uh, site. It's, yeah. it's quite remarkable. Well, we covered a, long, a wide range. So speaking mm-hmm. of Level Playing Field, this is an open playing field. You know, anything we yeah. talked about way back at uh, the start when we chatted about fox marks and their strategy, uh, and, and walking amongst the elephants, uh, you know, in their industry or uh, Second Life, like I said, uh, anything about funding or or uh, how to manage uh, or lead people, um, anything's fair game right now. So let's start in the back here, in the very back. Um, Mitch, I was wondering if you have any Is it thoughts. Dave about... McClure. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Speak up, Dave. Uh, what yeah. if you have any thoughts about leveling the playing field between the entrepreneur and the investor in terms of? Uh, term sheet education or other innovations that are happening with angel funding, anything in that variety. Any suggestions on how to level the playing field, just to quote unquote, between uh, entrepreneurs and, and venture capitalists so, and other investors? Well, so the phenomenon you're referring to, just to be really clear, is there can be great information asymmetries between what an investor who's done several dozen deals knows and what a first-time entrepreneur knows. Yeah. And when that information asymmetry is used to the entrepreneur's disadvantage, uh, you know, my view as a proponent of entrepreneurship is that's a bad thing. I would observe it's orders of magnitude easier today than it was a generation ago to get smart about this. I saw walking in just a poster for the three-minute VC pitch that undergraduates can apparently sign up for uh, and kind of, it's sort of like a field exercise. Right. You're not working with live ammunition, but you get a sense of it. Uh, that's important. There are sites like, I guess, the funded, that in which entrepreneurs trade information about what it is like to work with different VC firms. There's a million books and seminars, and there's, God, there's Y Combinator. And so, well, I haven't done a detailed analysis of it. I think it is just hugely better these days than it was well, entrepreneurship a while education, ago. which you know I've been uh, Tom invented. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, for all practical purposes, I in higher education, he did. Yeah, he, we all thought I'll, I'll he put, left industry what fifteen years ago. Yeah, and we thought they what kicked is, me out. What's what's Tom doing? He's kind of leaving all the interesting stuff. He's going to Stanford. Little did we know. No, he was really one of the founding people on. Yeah, with some people in this room yeah, and say, look, yeah. let's teach entrepreneurship yeah. to everybody. Right. Engineering, science, yeah. humanities, and so right. on. And, and if yeah. you, from yeah. one course and right. when we got here, of course, the business schools always yeah. had great courses. Uh, but that's 5% of the population here. What about the other 95%? And, and this has been repeated, by the way, at all the, you know, the major, uh, all our peer right. institutions, not only here in the United States, but around the world. So, frankly, for those of us who went to college a while ago, when I meet, you know, when I meet up with them, and I say, "Do you realize how much entrepreneurship education?" And you can put in words innovation, creativity, you know, all those uh, synonyms. But do you realize how much is being taught on campus? They go, "Oh no, 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 they wasn't not at my university, whatever that is." And I go, "Well, go on the web and look," and they'll go, "Wow, look at look what's happened in the last few years." So hopefully that'll have an impact. Let's do some other questions. And thanks for the kind words. Right here, right there, right. Uh, Compare Second Life's business model to World of Warcraft. They're they're really, um, 
extremely different. I mean, World of Warcraft is, is hugely successful, but it's a massively multiplayer online game. It's got, you know, it's been extended a lot to have much more user-generated content and the kind of the social, um, you know, ne- networking aspect of it is, is, is very important. But at the end of the day, the fundamental limits of what that thing can do are determined by the company that makes the system. And Second Life, it's really a platform. It's kind of neutral about what people do with it. And it, it, if it's going to work, it has to foster creativity and innovation by the people who use it in developing various services, commercial, non-commercial, and otherwise. So it's, it's fundamentally, a plat- ultimately, a platform company, which World of Warcraft isn't. And so yeah, it was a completely conscious choice not to generate the content because we couldn't afford it. There was no way to raise enough money to develop all of that content. And Philip and I had this idea, we didn't call it user-generated content, and Philip was really in the lead, but that if it was about unleashing people to do things that they couldn't do before. I mean, people do things in Second Life all the time Mm -hmm. that you used to have to be a professional game developer to do. Now, the hardcore gamers will say, yeah, but it sucks as a game. It's not as good, and I'm not going to use it. But that's not the point. I mean, the point is it's interesting enough that it attracts people who get very passionate about it. They're sort of a different set of people. And so and Second Life has a different trajectory. Where it's going to wind up, it's going to be different than where it is today. How about some over here? Right here. You talked a little bit about opportunities and sustainability. Can you talk more about where you see those big opportunities? So, so, so she was asking about some, uh, you know, your personal favorites, and your big opportunities in sustainability. Right. right. So I'm not an expert on alternative energy, but I do know that at, and believe at the intersection of information technology and energy, there's an enormous amount to do because there's essentially no intelligence in, in the system at all, whether it comes to sort of smart metering or local generation. or There's lots of ways of injecting IT to transform the systems that sort of produce and consume energy in different forms. We're seeing a lot of it in, in, in transportation. So if I were turning my attention, I'd be looking at people who think that they can have a, an, an, an IT-based play in some way that is going to get us onto an alternative energy economy. And certainly the leaders of every major uh, research yeah. university like Stanford or MIT or Berkeley yeah. are saying that those where the interesting research is taking place yeah. is at the intersection, say, between IT and energy. Right. So sometimes when I meet somebody and say, well, I, uh, I, uh, want, I'm in the information technology space, I say, well, but how is it going to be applied? And they go, well, they take me the next step and they'll, they'll talk could, about something could, like that. It gets pretty interesting. Could you give a very different yeah, example, though? Because too often sustainability is narrowed down to you know, energy and carbon footprint, but it's also yeah. about human capital. How does a, a company value mm-hmm. and sustain the people who work for it? One of the little projects that I'm incubating now is looking at how to deliver... Uh, training inside a virtual world. Now, I'm not alone in this. People in the training professions are incredibly interested in this, fundamentally because it it is much more possible in a virtual world to walk in somebody else's shoes, well, to walk in an avatar's shoes, to have an appearance very different from how you actually are and to be treated 
as in terms of, you know, visibly how you're seen in a way different than you actually are. And so tremendous raw material potentially for constructing role plays and training and uh, in ways that, by the way, do not re- ultimately won't require flying everybody around to be in the same room if you work for some global corporation because virtual worlds overcome the tyranny of geography. So that there's, there are sustainability plays there also. Yeah. Did you have a question? Right there, second row. Yeah. So what are your words about the personal data and wisdom of crowds? Yeah. Do you use uh, the wisdom of, do you, do you exploit the wisdom of crowds that are using a second life? And if yes, can you say any trends that you have? Do you exploit the wisdom, wisdom of, of crowds, crowds in, uh, with yeah. second life? Yeah, actually, in, in several different ways. I mean, for one thing, there's an, an incredibly active and vocal community of residents and developers that are very tightly coupled to what the company does. They actually formally and informally drive a significant amount of the decision-making about what gets worked on next. Um, but a second instance is that Internally, the company has about 250 people now. Um, and there is a lot of, um, everybody knows what everybody else is working on. And there are various exercises of both voting and kind of awarding points right across the whole company from anyone to anyone uh, that have to do with which, which projects get worked on uh, and, and, and which don't. So there's a kind of a, an openness of trying to develop means, there's something called the love machine uh, uh, that, that's used, to get a collective sense of the company about various projects and resource allocation and priorities that's very unusual. I should say it's a, it's a hybrid system because there's a lot of that and it's mixed with a more conventional ultimately executives make decisions, and it's very much a work in progress, but um, it, 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 it tries to practice what it preaches. I've got to uh, just yeah. wrap up here, but I have to say something. Oh, just recently, here, not bad for a Yale and MIT grad, but he uh, spoke over in the GSB to a whole bunch of uh, MBAs and, in a class that was being taught by Eric Schmidt, the CEO of uh, mm. Google and, uh, and some other professors. So he was just there last week. Last week. He, he took time to come down and be with us. Um, last summer, uh, can you imagine working for him? Wouldn't that be one of the nice to be one of the 10 employees? Well, uh, it turns out this program you might have heard about, the Mayfield Fellows Program. Uh, Mike, who was in that program last year, uh, just like you, you know, I'm talking to the undergrads in the room, uh, worked for Mitch as part of that program. That was the summer internship wrapped around the courses of this work-study program. So if, if that excites you, uh, please uh, check out, uh, because this is the month to apply. It's mfp.stanford.edu. And as a matter of fact, next Wednesday, there's, there's a reception tomorrow afternoon. But next Wednesday, right after this, right after ETL, there'll be a reception next door with all of us involved in the Mayfield <coughs> Fellows Program. Uh, so if that has any interest to you, after, actually, uh, after meeting uh, Mitch and saying, wow, it would have been cool to work for him and listen to this all summer long at Fox Marks, um, uh, please come and see us about that. All right, with that, uh, don't go anywhere. we got a little gift, right? Yes, mm-hmm. on behalf of Basis and STBP, thank you, Mitch, for speaking. Thank you. Let's give him a warm round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.